All right, if you have your Bible, turn with me. Going back to the Gospel of John in chapter 2, where we were this morning. Tonight I want to come back to the passage we began studying this morning, in which we see the first sign of Jesus, this first miracle. And um, we're just going to, I just want to make some observations Make some observations and a few applications to our lives. God's Word is is good. It is exceedingly good. Uh, Look at uh, John chapter 2, and let me just read these verses we looked at this morning, and then I'm just going to make three observations and some application to our lives with them. John 2, verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there from the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Now, I want to make some observations about this passage, things that we didn't really have time to deal with this morning uh, I want a, a couple of them. I want to go into some detail over, and the third one is going to be pretty brief. But um, so, bear with me. You might be thinking it's taking a long time, and the, the third one will be quite brief. But observation number one is this, and I want to begin by making this point before I tell you what the observation is. Uh, we read that passage this morning. I noted it this morning. Uh, we read it tonight, and I want you to remember this: the passage is not about the wine. The point is not about the wine. <laughs> The point is about the miracle and Jesus manifesting his glory, making himself known. So be really careful you don't get caught up in making a a bigger deal of the wine. Although I'm going to kind of make a big deal of it right now. (laughs) Because there are are some who who have come to this passage and they come up with all kinds of questions. And I kind of want to deal with some of those questions. So have you ever come to this passage, it's possible that you've come to this passage and you've read this and you've come to this and you kind of maybe wondered, knowing what you know about what the scriptures say about strong drink, how could Jesus justify making wine? Have you ever wondered that? Or maybe you've heard somebody say that. How could Jesus make wine? God, God's word forbids drunkenness, right? I mean, God's word is really clear that uh, uh, drunkenness is a sin. So, so how could Jesus justify making wine, someone might say. Well, before we go any further, and I would just encourage you to be very careful that you not call into question anything Jesus does because he is the sinless, 
Son of Man. We talked about Son of Man last week. He's the Son of God, God in human flesh. And so if Jesus does uh, something, we ought not call it into question and call into question how he ministered. What we do need to stop and think about is think about the setting, the time period in which Jesus ministered. Think about the setting in which Jesus ministered. So first, let's take note that this wine that Jesus made was not like the wine ever made before or ever made since. This wine didn't need a vineyard, which means it didn't need grapes, and it didn't need a growing season, and it didn't need a fermentation process. Because what Jesus makes is perfect. We noted that this morning. It's unlike anything they'd already served that day. That was obvious as the master of the feast remarked, whoa, this is, you know, this is incredible. You've saved the best for last. I want to share a quote with you from Charles Spurgeon. When he introduced this passage in John 2, he put, he put it like this. The wine which Jesus made was good wine, and it was made of water. We're not likely to meet any, with anything of that kind in this country, where he was, where the wine is seldom made from the pure juice of the grape, and where it is not known who made it or of what it is made. What is now called wine, and it's uh, true in our day too, as it was in Spurgeon's day, what is now called wine is a very different liquid from that which our Lord divinely produced. We use our Christian liberty to abstain from wine, and we judge that our Savior would approve of our avoiding that which in these days makes our brother to offend. We who quit the intoxicating cup of today have our ways of viewing our master's action in this instance, and we do not find it difficult to see wisdom and holiness in it. But even if we could not so interpret what he did, we should not dare to question him. Where others quibble, we adore. That's a good point. I think it's a good point by Spurgeon's point. uh, Spurgeon's point is well made. So let's be careful not to criticize Jesus for making wine where others quibble his line, where others quibble, we adore. We worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, some people might say that by turning the water into wine, Jesus is giving his approval of strong drink or of drinking alcohol. And I think the simplest answer to that notion is, is just to go to the Bible. What does the Bible repeatedly say about strong drink and drunkenness? The Bible repeatedly takes a very low view of of drunkenness, calling it a sin. Uh, One thing that drives this point home for us is to understand the fact that the wine that Jesus uh, experienced in his day, in, in the day in which Jesus walked this earth, the wine of that day was not the wine of our day. Um, That's, uh, Spurgeon made that point. I'll, let me share another quote from another Bible scholar, a Bible scholar of our day who is still living, and I've had the privilege of hearing speak and read some of his books. Bible scholar and author D.A. Carson writes of this, saying, uh, saying this, wine in the ancient world was diluted with water to, uh, to between one-third and one-tenth of its fermented strength, something less strong than an American beer. Undiluted wine about the strength of wine today was viewed as strong drink and earned much more disapproval. 
So do you understand that in Jesus' day, the water could not be trusted? It could not be trusted as sanitary. They would take wine, ferment it. It had to ferment. There was no refrigeration, so it would ferment. But it would be cut uh, with water. And as D.A. Carson points out, from, from one-third to one-tenth cut by water. So one part one part uh, wine, ten parts water, or one part wine, three parts water, anywhere in that range. There's nothing in the text, though, to suggest that what Jesus made wasn't real wine. Uh, there's nothing in the text that does that. It's very likely not the strong drink that's common of our day, because in Jesus' day, the, what they would have served would have been that, that wine that was mixed with water. Uh, it likely wasn't a strong drink that the Bible clearly teaches against becoming drunk on and his, his making of it uh, didn't condone drinking to drunkenness. So uh, again, we go back to what Spurgeon says, where others quibble, we, we, we bow and worship and we adore. Um, what Jesus did was we ought not to call into question whether he's condoning drunkenness. He is not doing that by uh, creating this wine. There's another way some of you this passage, some say, well, yes, okay, Jesus made wine, but it was, it was really just grape juice. Um, and that's, you know, some would say that. Again, let me quote D.A. Carson when he says, the wine that was needed was not mere grape juice, generic fruit of the vine. The idea is intrinsically silly as applied to countries whose agricultural tradition is so committed to viticulture. That's the tending of vines, tending of vineyards. Uh, another commentator says this about the objection that what Jesus made was grape juice. And this is kind of an extended quote, so hang on with me as I read this. Um, throughout the passage, the Greek word translated wine is oinos, uh, which was the common Greek word for normal wine, wine that was fermented, alcoholic. The Greek word for, for the wine that Jesus created is the same word for the wine the wedding feast ran out of. The Greek word for the wine Jesus created is also the same word that is used in Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk on wine. Obviously, getting drunk from drinking wine requires the presence of alcohol. Everything from the context of the wedding feast to the usage of oinos, in the first century Greek literature, in the New Testament and outside the New Testament, argues for the wine that Jesus created to be normal, ordinary wine containing alcohol. There is simply no solid historical, cultural, exegetical, contextual, or lexical reason to understand it to have been grape juice. He goes on, those who oppose the drinking of alcohol in any quantity argue that Jesus would not have turned the water into wine as he would have been promoting the consumption of a substance that is tainted by sin. In this understanding, alcohol itself is inherently sinful and consumption of alcohol is in any quantity is sin. This is not a biblical understanding. However, some scriptures discuss alcohol in positive terms. Ecclesiastes 9.7 instructs, drink your wine with a merry heart. Psalm 104, 14 and 15 states that God gives wine that makes glad the heart of man. Amos 9, 14 discusses drinking wine from your own vineyard as a sign of God's blessing. Isaiah 55, 1 encourages, yes, come buy wine and milk. 
From these and other scriptures, it is clear that alcohol itself is not inherently sinful. Rather, it is the abuse of alcohol, drunkenness, and or addiction that is sinful. Therefore, it would not have been a sin for Jesus to create a drink that contained alcohol. A second related argument is that by creating alcoholic wine, Jesus would have been promoting drunkenness, which I've addressed earlier. This commentator goes on to say, which the Bible clearly identifies as sinful. This is not a valid argument. Was Jesus promoting gluttony when he multiplied the fishes and loaves far beyond what the people needed? Of course not. Creating a substance that can be abused does not make one responsible when another person foolishly chooses to abuse it. Jesus creating alcoholic wine was in no sense encouraging drunkenness. The belief that Jesus created alcoholic wine is definitely more in agreement with the context and the definition and usage of the word, the Greek word oinos, the primary reasons for interpreting it as grape juice that alcohol is inherently sinful or that the creation of alcohol would have been encouraging drunkenness are unbiblical and invalid. There is simply no good biblical reason to understand John 2 as saying anything other than Jesus performing an amazing miracle by turning water into real wine. Is drunkenness sinful? Absolutely. Is addiction sinful? Definitely. Would Jesus turning the water into alcoholic wine in any way violate God's standards regarding the consumption of alcohol? Absolutely not. I appreciate those remarks. I think that's helpful to stop and slow down and think about that uh, more deeply. The Bible is really clear about the serious danger of being controlled by a strong drink, right? If you read the scriptures, you're going to bump up against it often that it is foolish to be controlled by a strong drink. Let me note this too. It's also foolish to be controlled by anything. So there's a, uh, there's a thing that, that we love called food. And when I say we, I mean me. <laughs> that, I, that I have to be careful with. That, you know, I could go crazy with uh, uh, you, uh, Carolyn. She makes cookies um, and um, we don't have any kids around to eat them anymore. And um, I could go go crazy eating half the batch before the before they're cooled down. I've got to be careful. I don't do that. Sugar is uh, d- does a number on me, right? It does a number on all of us. But but I can understand that alcohol is in a in a category of its own in some ways because it has a powerful control over one's life, like other substances, other things that that we would say, well, they're Ill- illegal in our society. There's other things that our culture is trying to make legal that we ought not allow any of those things to control us. So I think the point is well made that for a follower of Jesus, the teaching, and we just go to the teaching of Ephesians 5.18, makes it really clear, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But, you know what the opposite is? The opposite of this is to but be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by God. Be in His Word, Yield your life to the Spirit's control. Obey God's Word. Part of obeying God's Word, do not get drunk with wine. Do not be controlled by alcohol. It's really clear. Uh, I think that point is well made. Is alcohol in itself sinful? I would say no. I don't think that 
we can say that alcohol in itself is sinful. It's what we do with it that can be sinful. Is the common use of alcohol to intoxication in our day sinful? I believe it is. It's so common that, that so many treat alcohol with the attitude of, I'm, I'm going to take the edge off. I've had a hard day. I'm going to make life easier for myself for the next few hours. Why? Because we want to get intoxicated and forget everything else. Um, there, um, I, I, was, I was very blessed very blessed to grow up in a family where there was no alcohol in sight. When I told my father I was joining the Marines, he was scared to death for me because he thought, you're going to be around all kinds of guys who are doing all kinds of things, and you're going to have all kinds of opportunities and temptations that you have never had. And I praise God that I was never tempted to drink. It is, it is one of those things that I'm grateful for. I also praise God for the roommates that I had, one of them who, who drank heavily. And I saw what it did to him. And I saw how difficult his life was because of it. And it, and it just kept me, um, kept me uh, straight and narrow in that way. I, I can't tell you that I have, uh, have not struggled with other sin. But that one, I praise God for it, has not been a temptation for me. That may not be true for you. That may not be true for you. Maybe alcohol is a problem for you. And you need to say, help me, Lord, to say no to this strong drink so it does not control my life. Is the common use of alcohol to intoxication a scourge on our society today? Yes, it is. And if you're asking me what you should do, I would say don't drink. You don't need it. Do you need it? Do you need it? But I cannot say, I don't believe we can say the Bible forbids strong drink. I don't think we can. Uh, But I do say very clearly, the Bible is extremely clear that drunkenness is forbidden. It is a sin. Here's the Here's the plight. I mean, if you need some evidence from the Scriptures, here's the plight of the person who's controlled by alcohol. Listen to Proverbs 23. And just a few verses from Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35. Here's the plight of the person controlled by alcohol. Who has woe, says verse 29, Proverbs 23. Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes, those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I wake? I must have another drink. I mentioned my roommate when I was in the Marine Corps. We guarded uh, nuclear warheads together. And he would come back after a night off and he couldn't get his key in the door to our room. And I would wake up in the middle of the night to scratch, 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 him trying to find the key hole, and I would open the door for him. I would wake up in the morning to hear him in the bathroom heaving and grieving. And, um, and he would say, I'll never do that again. And he would go out and do it again that night. And he would say to me, you've never had a drink? And I would say, I never have. He goes, good for you. He was serious good for you. Don't ever start. And he would go out 
That's the, that's the plight of the person that's controlled by alcohol. Um, the same time we're talking about alcohol, I just, again, I'll just echo that, what I said earlier. There are other things that could control us that aren't alcohol. And we need to be careful with those and ask for God's wisdom and help with them. Now, there shouldn't be anything that controls us but the Holy Spirit, God's Word and the Spirit. Enough on that. Observation number two. Uh, have you ever come to this first miracle of Jesus? It's essentially his first public act. It was actually kind of semi-public. This is his first public act. It wasn't in front of great crowds necessarily. But have you ever come to this and noted what his presence at a wedding communicates to us? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus went to a wedding and went to a wedding feast. So uh, verses 1 and 2 tells us, On the third day there was a wedding at Canaan Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So Mary was there. Um, She may have had some responsibility in the wedding, or maybe she was friends of the family, or she wasn't the wedding planner, was she? Um, she had, maybe she had some responsibility there or just cared for the family, the friends of the family, and she was there. And, and Jesus was invited along with his disciples, and at this point his disciples likely consist of those that we saw in chapter 1. And Jesus and his disciples attend the wedding feast also. Jesus' very presence at, at this wedding, I think, is an indicator of his approval of the institution of marriage and the importance of marriage between a man and a woman. Um, This is important, especially the culture that we're living in right now. Of course, we can go back to the creation account, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. We can see that God brings two people together, uh, a man and woman together, and makes them one. So the institution of marriage is is a vital one. And I think Jesus' presence at this celebration of a marriage is an important reminder to us of the importance of this and and his approval of marriage. J.C. Ryle uh, is a minister and a Bible commentator from the 19th century, so he's been gone for over 100 years. But what he wrote uh, was very helpful, and I've read some of his works and have shared them with others, but he says this, Marriage is not a sacrament, as the Church of Rome asserts, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Marriage is not a sacrament. It is simply a state of life ordained by God for man's benefit. But it is a state which ought never to be spoken of with levity or regarded with disrespect. At the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of Hebrews Uh, communicates the heart of God, I think, clearly regarding marriage like this. Listen to Hebrews 13 and verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God the Father and God the Son, here's what we see in His Word, God the Father and God the Son hold marriage in high regard, high esteem. And so we dare not take marriage lightly, and I would suggest that even includes how we talk about our own marriages. And I've heard uh, believers throughout the decades, the few decades that I've been alive, 
talk about their own marriages in ways that make me cringe sometimes. And I thought that, that, you know, that ought not be true of believers. We ought to cherish our marriages. Um, who's had a marriage that has been trouble-free? No, no one in this room that's married, right? We, we've all had troubles in, in our lives together because you, you come together with a different person, but God makes you one. And by God's design, He puts us together to help one another and to glorify Him in the way that we observe marriage. And so the way that we talk about it, the way that we treat it, ought to be held in high esteem by God's people of all people. Uh, When the culture around us treats marriage like a thing that can be easily thrown away, uh, God's people ought not take marriage so lightly. We ought to be serious about it. It is not a a thing to joke about even divorcing your spouse. I've heard, I've heard believers joke about, oh, you know, she or he does that, I'll just, you know, can them or whatever. And we have to be really careful about that. Or, or joking about your spouse in front of or behind their back. I'll not be done. We have uh, Jesus teaching on how we ought to view marriage. Uh, when the Pharisees asked him about divorce, this is how Jesus replied. He points back to creation, and we ought to do that too. Uh, this, is, this is powerful and necessary, especially, again, in the culture that we're living in that is upside down and backwards concerning marriage. Go back to Genesis. Genesis, uh, these words, uh, Jesus points back to Genesis. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him, asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read? Have you not read? that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. uh, Marriage is an important institution designed by God, ordained by God, ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we learn from Jesus' presence at this wedding and celebration not to take marriage lightly or to enter into marriage lightly or to treat our own marriages lightly or with disrespect. It's for our own sake, for our own spiritual health. It's for our children's sake, our grandchildren's sake, for the life of the community in which we live. I think, too, uh, the, longer, uh, the longer we are living on this earth, we may find as a church we may fa- face challenges to the biblical definition of marriage. And some of us have seen it in our own families, and we grieve when there's a challenge to the biblical definition of marriage as being between one man and one woman. And we need to be devoted to what God's word says and remain firm and stand fast and refuse to change no matter what. Because God holds marriage in high regard. The Lord Jesus' presence at this wedding reminds us of that. Observation number three, and I told you this one was brief, and this may be the briefest point I have ever made. Because I don't think I need to belabor this one Have you ever realized that Jesus' presence at this wedding is a reminder to us that there are times for rejoicing and there are times for celebrating? 
(laughs) We like to rejoice and we like to celebrate, don't we? But as God's people, you uh, you have the Lord Jesus Christ example right here. Gone to a wedding, gone to a wedding feast where there was celebrating, where there was rejoicing. And I would just say here that Christians have absolutely no reason to be seen as people who are always frowning and don't know how to have fun. We ought to be the, the most joyful people on earth. We ought to be people that, that uh, kind of amaze our friends and neighbors because we have joy and they're not sure where we're getting it from and they're not sure how we find it in ourselves to find joy when there are hardships which we do face. But Christians have no reason to be some, seen as people who are always kind of down and out and uh, frowning and um, glum and refuse to have fun. I praise God for the fellowship that we had a week ago, Saturday night, around a good meal and a barrel of laughs uh, when we had a good time together watching the, the comedy routines of, uh, of some Christian comedians. But it doesn't have to be just that. Uh, we ought to know how to celebrate in a way that glorifies God. We ought to uh, be, be able to uh, celebrate and rejoice in ways that uh, bring honor to God and, uh, and enjoy ourselves in ways that, that bring honor to God. And really, the, our celebrating and our enjoyment should do that. Uh, so may, I will just say this, so may our celebrating be wholesome, uh, may our rejoicing be God-honoring, and may it be said of us as followers of Jesus that we are the happiest, most joyful people on earth. I worked with a couple of people who... Um, who were very religious. Many years ago, I worked with a couple of people who were very religious, but they were a part of what I would classify as a cult. And they were the most unhappy people I knew in the whole place. Out of all the unbelievers in the place, and they were unbelievers, though they were very religious, they were part of a religious cult. And um, they had a form of religion, but they didn't have the substance, they didn't have the truth of the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ to change them to give them hope, to give them joy. There were a bunch of unbelievers that I worked with, but of all the unbelievers I knew in that place, they were the least happy, the least joyful. And it broke my heart because they didn't know Jesus. If you know Jesus, you have every reason for joy, every reason for rejoicing, every reason for enjoying the life that God has entrusted to you here, enjoying some of the pleasures of life that God has given you to enjoy this side of heaven. They're just a sliver. They're just a taste of the joys that you're going to get in eternity. But God has given us some common graces to enjoy this side of heaven, and we ought to enjoy them for God's glory. Those are my three observations tonight. May God's word encourage you as you read, as you come to things like that, and you ask questions about the text, and you ask questions about God's word, ask for God's wisdom. He loves to give you wisdom from his word to help answer questions like these and give you observations like these that will give you hope for every day that you have this side of heaven.